Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. I know that with the weather being what it is, and maybe a series of late nights, having been here for the past few nights, it would have been very easy to just curl up in your beds and not be there. And I also realize that it's a Saturday where there's probably a lot of other things going on and other ways that you could spend your time, but you've chosen to be here to hear God's word, and that's very encouraging to me. Um, you know, there are some groups that call things like this revivals, and I was thinking about that as we were singing one of these songs this morning, and the song, Cleanse Me, the fourth verse says, O Lord above, revival comes from thee. Send a revival, start the work in me. Thy word declares thou wilt supply our need. For blessing now, O Lord, I humbly plead. So we sang those words together, and we were asking for revival. And I've always kind of liked that term, because that really is what we are hoping to accomplish with our time together. That as we open God's word, that he will revive us, that he will stir us up, that through his word, that we will be strengthened and encouraged to be everything that he wants us to be. So I appreciate you wanting to revive your spirits with God's word and you being here and supporting this effort. And I hope that as we spend time in God's word, that his word will do everything in our hearts that he wants it to do. This morning we're going to be talking about the products of godly sorrow. Last night we were talking about walking in the light and what that looks like. And we were careful to point out that it doesn't mean that we should expect sinless perfection in our lives. We should settle for nothing less. We should be content with nothing less. But the reality is all of us will sin at some point. All of us are going to step off the curb. And so what do we do? How do we repent? And that's really what this lesson is about. You know, Paul established the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And it appears that Paul wrote at least four different letters to the church in Corinth, two of which we have in our New Testaments. First and second Corinthians are actually the second and fourth letters that Paul wrote. And after establishing the church there in Corinth, at some point Paul apparently wrote a letter to Corinth that we don't have. But after completing his second missionary journey and then starting his third one, he stayed in Ephesus for a period of three years. And while he was there in Ephesus, he had some extended interactions with the church in Corinth. He had gotten a response to his first letter, and he had heard some reports about some things that were going on in the church. But they had written to him and asked him some questions, and so he wrote a reply to them, and that's what we call 1 Corinthians. We have that letter. But after he got back to Ephesus, um, or while he was still in Ephesus after that letter, he realized that there were some problems going on. And so he made an impromptu visit from Ephesus, a visit that he calls a painful visit. And he goes back to Ephesus, and it's not too much longer that he hears of more problems going on. There's sin in the church. And so this time, instead of visiting, he sends a painful letter. And it was after he sent that painful letter that he was really wondering how they had received it. It gave him a lot of anxiety. 
He was worried about them and how they had responded to the tough love that he had to show them through the words of that letter. And you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 1. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so it was because he loved them that he had to say some things to them that were very hard. And there were tears involved and there was anxiety involved, but he was waiting to find out how they had received that letter. And the context of that is important because it helps us to understand why Paul was so anxious when he was writing 2 Corinthians, which is now the fourth letter that he writes to them. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, he mentions, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. It's actually a shocking detail that we find out about Paul's travels here. Because if you know anything about Paul, you know that he was all about teaching people the gospel. He was all about praying for open doors and looking for open doors. And Paul says that when he came to Troas, that that's exactly what he found. He found an open door. And he moved on. For some reason, he didn't stay in Troas and pursue those opportunities there, but he pushed on to Macedonia to find Titus. And we don't exactly find out what that's all about until we get to chapter 7. And in 2 Corinthians 7, in verse 5, he tells us why he was so intent on finding Titus in Macedonia. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. You see, Paul knew how much his harsh letter would grieve them to read. Maybe you've had an experience like that before, where you've had to write uh, a card or a note to somebody that you cared about, and you knew that it wasn't going to be pleasant for them to read. And I almost get the idea that Paul dropped it in the mailbox, and he was just like almost hesitant to let go of the envelope, you know. And I know that they didn't have mailboxes. That's not the way he actually sent it. But, you know, when you put it in that little slot, you know that there's no going back. A little hesitation to let, let go of the mail. And he says, you know, I was worried about how you would receive it, and, and, and I didn't know how this would play out. But now that I've seen your response to the letter, I know that it was worth it. Whatever pain or discomfort that you went through produced exactly what it needed to produce. And so, here he talks about the comfort that he's received. 
You'll notice that he mentions the word comfort four times in verses 6 and 7. God comforts the downcast. Paul was comforted by Titus. Titus was comforted by them. And he told Paul of the comfort that he had received. And if you look further in verses 13 through 16, you see comfort being the theme here. In verse 13, he says, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the coming of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And so, while Paul was at Ephesus, he had sent Titus to go check on the church in Corinth. And when he pressed on to Troas, he didn't find Titus there, and he kept pressing on until he found Titus in Macedonia, and Titus caught back up with Paul and said, their response to your harsh letter was everything that it needed to be. I'm comforted, they're comforted, you should be comforted, let's rejoice. And I want to make a couple of observations about this. First of all, we should be grieved by sin. And second of all, our grief should lead us to comfort. You know, if we've done something bad, it's good for us to feel bad. We need to feel bad. But God doesn't want us to keep feeling bad. And both sides of that are important. The reason why Paul was upset was because he knew that they had committed sin. The reason why they were upset was because they knew they had committed sin. And it's never really comfortable to be confronted with sin in your life. At least it shouldn't be. You know, maybe somebody has helped you to see sin in your life in some way. Maybe you've heard a message in a sermon that was convicting. Or maybe a friend or a family member or a brother or a sister has come to you and pointed something out and said, this is something that you need to work on. This is something you need to address. But it's important to realize that we need to feel bad. Because if we ever will find comfort, that's the only way. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4? As he was describing the character of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you want to have the kind of comfort that Paul is describing here, you have to first have the kind of mourning that Jesus was talking about. We have to have a kind of sorrow that will actually lead to comfort. And the thing that bridges the gap, the thing that connects the grief and the mourning to the comfort and the refreshing, right there in the middle, is repentance. And see, that's what Paul describes in the verses that we skipped here. To back up a little bit in 2 Corinthians 7, in verse 9, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If we were to think about that word repentance, I think it would help us to understand the kind of thing Paul's talking about. 
The Greek word for repentance is pronounced something like metanoeo. Metanoeo. And if you think about that word, you probably start to think about the word metamorphosis. And it's actually the exact same root. And when you think about a metamorphosis, you think about a butterfly or some other insect that goes through some radical transformation where it looked one way and now it looks totally different. And that's the idea. Repentance is a transformation. It's a metamorphosis. And when the New Testament writers talked about repentance, they didn't just mean behavior modification. It's not just change the practice. It's not something that happens from the outside in, but it's something that happens from the inside out. And if it's going to be lasting change, if it's going to be real change, that's the way that it has to work. And so repentance, the way I like to think about it, is it's a change of heart that results in a change of action. It's a change in mind that results in a change in action. It's something that begins on the inside, and because of what happens for real on the inside, begins to happen for real on the outside, too. It's like John called people to have fruits in keeping with repentance. And so that is the change that eventually leads to comfort. And so again, if we've done bad, we need to feel bad. But God doesn't want us to keep feeling bad. He wants us to feel bad so that we can reach a point of being comforted. And the way that happens is by letting our grief move us to action. From uh, grief to comfort, the path is repentance. And so here's the main text that I want us to spend our time with. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 13. Here Paul describes what godly grief or godly sorrow that leads to repentance looks like. And he says here in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. What I want you to notice is that this text begins with grief, and it ends with comfort. And like we've been talking about already this morning, that's exactly how God wants us to move. He wants us to move from grief to comfort. And you see that it's this grief that produces repentance in verse 10. But if you begin to look at verse 11, you'll see that godly grief actually produces a lot of things. He gives us a whole list of things that godly grief produces. And so for it to actually result in true repentance, that inward change that results in an outward change, there's many different facets to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces a whole list of things that all together will add up to producing repentance. So you might think about this text almost like a roadmap. If you want to get to verse 13, we'll start with verse 10. And if you want your grief in verse 10 to be the kind of grief that results in repentance and ends with comfort, we have to see all of these road signs along the way in verse 11. 
And so these, again, are the products of godly sorrow that together will produce repentance and end in comfort. And so what I'd like to do is just think about each one of these things that Paul lists. Earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. The first word here is earnestness. And the idea behind earnestness is something like speed or diligence. You know, to go back to the lesson last night, when you realize that you've taken a step off the curve, are you quick to respond to that? Are you eager to respond to that? When you discover that there's sin in your life, somebody helps you to see it, do you react in a way where you're not delayed? That's what earnestness is. I like how Hebrews chapter 6 contrasts this word with the word sluggish. Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 11. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, if you're somebody that has to be dragged along to make the changes in your life that you need to make, you're probably not really experiencing godly sorrow. If you're somebody that has to be taken along kicking and screaming and begrudgingly saying, okay, fine, I guess I'll do what I'm supposed to do, then you don't have godly sorrow. But godly sorrow produces an eagerness, an earnestness, a speed, a diligence to repent. And so if I could just put this into a phrase, this is the idea of I will repent of my sin and I won't let anything stand in my way. That's the kind of idea. The second phrase here that godly sorrow produces is an eagerness to clear yourselves. And again, the Greek helps us out. In Greek, the word is apologia. It's the same way that we get the word apology or apologetics. And in apologetics, you know, the whole field of apologetics is you want to make a case for the validity of Scripture or for the Creator, that there is a God and there's evidence for Him. Um, Paul uses this word in 2 Timothy 4 in verse 16. When he said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. It's the idea of making a defense. It's like a legal term, uh, like a court case. Same word again in 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter tells us that we need to be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us. It's the idea of building a reasonable case. You know, that's really a part of godly sorrow, too is I want to build a reasonable case that this is not who I am. I want to repent of my sins because I want to prove that this is not who I am. I am not somebody who lives in sin. I'm not somebody who's content with sin. I'm not somebody who walks in the darkness. I'm not somebody that's dishonest. I'm not somebody that treats other people wrong. I'm not somebody that's sexually immoral. I'm not somebody that lies or cheats or steals. That's not who I am, and I'm going to make a case that I can't be defined that way. That's a part of godly sorrow, an eagerness to clear yourselves. But the third word that Paul mentions here is the word indignation. Indignation. And I like this one because it has the idea of 
righteous anger. There's a song that um, I heard within the past few years. I don't think it's in the songbooks you have here. But it's called, Oh Church Arise. And I know Reagan knows this song, but it's one of my favorites. And there's a line in the song, Oh Church Arise, that says, Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captive. I like that. You know, we should be people that are filled with love and love people and love the things that God loves, but we should also be people that hate what God hates, that rage against what God rages against. I'm going to say there's a part of me that really likes this because there's still a part of me that's a little boy, and I like to break things every now and then. You know, like when you see a sandcastle on the beach, there's just... That intrusive thought that says, you should kick that over. <laughs> and now at 31 years old, I know like I'm not just going to start kicking over random kids' sandcastles that would make me a, a monster. But you know, like there's a part of you that just thinks like, that would be really fun to break and kick down. And that's the way that we need to think about sin. That's the way that we need to think about the kind of chains that the devil would put on us. Paul uses this language a couple of different times. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, here in the same book. He talks about, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You know, if the devil has built up lies in your mind, you should be really upset about that and be eager to tear those down. Ephesians chapter 6 is the one that we use most often thinking about uh, our spiritual warfare. And it's there in verse 11 that he tells us to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so for Christians, sin is really the only thing that we're allowed to hate. But we should hate it with every fiber of our being. And so a part of godly sorrow is this attitude. I will repent of my sin because I hate the devil's lies. A fourth part of godly sorrow that Paul mentions here is the word fear. And again, I'll appeal to the Greek word because the Greek is phobos. It's where we get our word phobia. If you have arachnophobia, you have a fear of spiders. But we should have a phobia of sin. That's kind of what is being described here. It's the idea of alarm or dread or terror. And really where this fear is rooted in is in our fear of God. I lost one. I'm not sure which one. 
right, thanks for helping me out. So the idea is that there is a fear of sin in our lives. You know, if I discover that there's something in me, something that I'm doing, something I'm thinking, it should be alarming. It should be unsettling. It should sort of make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And again, that fear is rooted in our fear of God. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, I think we see the fear of God really being illustrated here for us in a way that's convicting. Hebrews 10 and verse 28. He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A part of this idea of the fear is that we fear what a righteous and holy God will do with us if we live in rebellion to him. But we also fear the effects that sin has on us. You know, sin doesn't only condemn us, sin also destroys us and enslaves us. It whittles away what makes us who we are. And so a part of godly sorrow is I will repent of my sin because I'm terrified of its effect on me. Now the next word in the list here in 2 Corinthians 7 is the word longing. The King James Version translates this word as vehement desire. Or intense desire. But I like the way the ESV renders it as longing. I think that really captures the idea. And I like that this word is in the text because it balances out all of these really strong, intense emotions that we've been talking about. You know, when I figure out that I've got sin in my life, it becomes apparent to me, I need to not only react with earnestness and eagerness and rage and fear, but also heartache. It's sort of like homesickness. That I know deep down I'm not where I need to be. And there's a tender part of me that just craves being in fellowship with God again. And so the idea behind longing is I will repent of my sin because I'm tired of being distant from God. The next word in the list is the word zeal. And this word is the word zeo in Greek, which means to boil with heat or to be hot. And the idea behind something boiling is like it can't stay still. If something is boiling, it's bubbling up, it's fizzling out, it's bubbling over, and it's not still, it's not content to just be still. And if we have godly sorrow, that's going to be the way we are too. It kind of goes back to that idea of earnestness, speed, and diligence. That when I realize that there's something in my life that is not in fellowship with God, that is misaligned with his character, I'm not going to be able to stop until I've addressed it. And so I will repent of my sin because I just can't stand to stay how I am anymore. 
But then finally, the last word in the list is the word punishment. The idea is vindication. The New American Standard uses the phrase avenging of wrong. The King James Version uses the word revenge. And you know, that should be a part of our attitude as well. That I hate my sin. I'm tired of my sin. It's taken too much from me. And I'm going to take back what's mine. I'm going to get rid of it because I'm tired of the way I've been suffering. I will repent of my sin because I've had enough. Now I want you to think about this list. Think about all these different components of godly sorrow. All these different components of repentance, actually, that godly sorrow produces. And think about your own life. Is there sin in your life that you need to deal with? Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? And if you haven't really made a lasting change, if there hasn't been a true change inside of you that's resulted in a true change outside in the way that you live your life, is it because there's something missing in your sorrow? Is it because godly sorrow hasn't produced all of the things inside of you that godly sorrow produces? Because what Paul is helping us to see is that when it does, it will lead to repentance. It will lead to change. When the change inside is real, the change in out, in the, on the outside will be real as well. And so if we've sinned, it's good for us to feel bad. But it's even better for us to feel comfort. And the only way to move from grief to comfort is by repentance. There's one last benefit of repentance that I want to notice with you here. After Paul goes through this list and he talks about how godly grief or godly sorrow produces all these different qualities and it results in repentance, and the end part of it is comfort, he mentions something really interesting in verse 12. He says that, Although I wrote to you, it wasn't for the sake of the one who did the wrong, and it wasn't for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but the reason why I wrote these things to you, and I made you feel what I made you feel, and, and I took this seriously, was so that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying, just, I wanted you to see how much you cared about us. The reason why he wanted them to see how much they cared about Paul and the apostles was because Paul and the apostles were giving them the word of God. Really, the idea is, I wanted you to see your earnestness for righteousness. I wanted you to see your earnestness for godliness. I wanted you to see the earnestness inside of you for being in fellowship with God. And so their sorrow was validating. Now, could you imagine how crushing and devastating it would have been for Paul if that isn't what was revealed? Like if Paul had dropped that harsh letter in the, in, in, in the mailbox, and they had read it, and they had read over it, and instead of feeling all these things that they did feel in verse 11, and instead of actually repenting, that they had just sort of looked at that letter and said... I don't really care about that. And just crumpled it up, tossed it away. 
That would have been a horrifying realization. Because what would have been revealed is not their earnestness, but their apathy. What would have been revealed is not their love for God, but their disdain for God. And so, really, that is the question that we have to face in our own lives. Because every time we discover sin in ourselves, we have the same opportunity. We can prove our earnestness for God, or we can prove that we don't have earnestness for Him. But if we are earnest in our love for God, we need to prove it. We need to love what He loves. We need to hate what He hates. And when there's some discrepancy between the way I'm living and God's character, then we need to make haste to make it right. That is the lesson this morning. I appreciate you listening to it. And I hope that it's instructive and I hope that it's helpful. Because I know that there are times when it seems like the sin is going on in somebody's life and it just is seeming impossible to shape. Well, again, think back to this list. Is there some part of this that needs to change? Is there some part of your godly sorrow that needs to be supplemented? And if there is, think about that aspect of it and let it lead you to repentance. There might be somebody here this morning who needs to make your life right with God before you leave. The invitation is always open. I hope you know that. There's no law that says you can only come to Christ when we're assembled together like this. But you have an opportunity to make your life right with God here before you leave. If you're outside of Christ and you are willing to repent of your sins, to change everything about the way that you're living, to give your life to Him, to be buried in baptism and raised to walk a new life, you can do that before you leave. And if you need to make confession of something public, or if you just want to ask for prayers of the saints because there's some sin that you need to repent of, you have the opportunity to do that too. But if we can help you in any way, the invitation is from the Lord. And we join in inviting you while we stand together and sing.